so let me let me just ask, uh, what's the thing that you go, that's not okay? What's the thing in your life that when you see it, you go, that's not okay? All right. Uh, I'll tell you what mine is. All right, and that is people talking in movie theaters. Are you with me? All right. That is a that is really bad. Okay, and I um, I was thinking about this. I've gotten a lot better. I, I used to have a nickname years ago uh, where people would call me Uncle Robin uh, because Uncle Robin was kind of a curmudgeon, and Uncle Robin was okay confronting confronting any and everyone. I mean, I'm the guy that on the highway, if you're not driving the right way, I would get right behind you uh, and look at you until you looked at me in your rearview mirror and until you acted right. I'm not joking. I would do those things. Um, I'm also the guy in movie theaters that would go uh, to 12-year-olds and confront them in the middle of a movie and say to them, you need to be quiet. Um, this is not how you interact, and that's not appropriate ways to respond to what's happening on the film. Not joking. And it really almost blew up in my face a few years ago because uh, the last time I did that, the last time I did that, I remember I was, forget, I think it was like Jurassic World or something. And, and honestly, it's okay to talk during that stuff, right? Because that was just a horrible movie and, and whatever else. I remember, though, people talking and, you know, people want to make those comments that really kind of get the, the crowd going. And so I got up out of my seat. I walked to the middle of the theater. I leaned over and looked at the person who was talking saying, no one came to listen to you. Do you understand that? So you need to stop so we can watch the movie. And then I said it about that loud, went back and sat down. Uh, afterwards, uh, those people were waiting for me outside the theater. And I did not realize the person I was talking to was about six foot four and 280 pounds. Um, and then we had a moment where I started walking towards him and I thought, I'm a pastor. This shouldn't be happening right now. Something's wrong with me. Um, and so all that to say, I kind of woke up and saw myself and was like, can't be doing that anymore, all right? Now, if you register as an Enneagram 8, this is your life. Like, you just understand this. Like, confrontation is just the air you breathe. You, you love the idea of confronting anything and everyone because you want to bring change, right? You want to bring change. And there are things we look at in life and we just want to bring change to it. And we don't really always know what to do with it. Some of us uh, go for the whole passive aggressive thing, right? Um, maybe we're subtweeting. Um, some of us are aggressive aggressive. Uh, and some of us just pull the sheets over our, our head and hope that it all goes away. And, and the reality is though is none of those probably are the best way to go about it. But what we do know is that there are times that we have to confront things in this world and in our lives because things must change. It's important that things can change. Um, matter of fact, the word confront in the Latin means with front or with face. It means that you come with your face to another's face and you have honesty and you talk about the thing that you're so displeased with, the thing that you really want to see done and changed. And and yet, in the, in, in the midst of all that, we have really unhealthy ways we go about it. We want to shame people into change, or we want to yell them into change, or rage them into change, but those things really don't work at the end of the day. Now, I say all that to say, we find in this passage 
um, a confrontation that's going down uh, by this, the, the Sanhedrin to this guy, Stephen. And yet we really find Stephen finding the courage to be, the courage to be enough in the moment and to confront really what's happening there. That one person is saying, this is the problem, and Stephen's able to say, no, that's not it, you're missing it. Now, that said, we need to kind of get a little context why Stephen is being questioned in the first place. If you look back in chapter 6, verse 12, we find that there's a lot going on. Stephen is, is a disciple of the disciples of the apostles, so he's about now a third-generation disciple. If you think about Jesus discipling the disciples, they pass it on. We're now the third generation of people's lives being changed. And with that, he is waiting tables. So you would think he's not that big of a deal, but he's so present and so with himself, it's almost unnerving. He actually reminds you of Jesus because he's able just to be so present in the moment and speak truth so clearly. And, you know, we've had a few sermons trying to hint at this. We talked about it a few weeks ago with the idea of listening to God and and be able to have the right things to say in the right moment. We, we desire that. Uh, we talked about the need to obey in, in hard times. And this is going to be more about, though, it's in the same vein, but it's really going to be more about what does it mean to be and then to be able to confront? That you're so with yourself, you can then confront the thing in front of you. And we find in chapter 6, verse 12, it says, so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped spreading against this holy place, speaking against this holy place and against the law. But we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And it says, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. So he has an audience. Now, a lot of times what we think of in this passage, if you grew up in church, we think of Stephen the martyr. Think of that's kind of the, the big point here is that he dies for his faith. And, and that's the result of it, yes. But I think there's going to be more to it that this passage will find. Um, because Stephen is basically kind of like a half-breed. That sounds really tacky to say and horrible to say, but that's how they would look at someone at that time. That he, he was mixed biracial. He was an Hellenist Jew. Like, he had customs that he could relate to because he was Jewish, and yet he was raised in this, this Roman world. So he was already at a discount from the Sanhedrin. They didn't really want to listen to him in the first place. He's also a no-name, isn't he? Like, so far, the confrontations have been happening with, like, people like Peter and John, these firsthand people of Jesus. And you know this, like, you want to kind of talk to the head honcho or head honchos if you got something that you need to, like, let's, let's kind of nip this in the bud. So who is this person here that is doing all these things like the other apostles, but this person isn't an apostle? This person doesn't have the fancy title or doing all the big work, but he's still doing great big work. And so they are confronted with this idea of a no-name coming before them who's a disciple of the disciple, this is the last person they're expecting to get a mic drop on them, right? And then Stephen confronts them, and it becomes the final straw. And here's what's important to know. Here's, here's why we're looking at this passage. It's because 
Stephen knows the story of Israel so well, he's able to critique and confront it. And this is going to be a big point we use throughout. Because he knows the story in and out. He knows where they've come from. He knows where they are, and he knows if they don't pay attention to that, where they always will be looping time and time again. He knows that they will keep repeating the same mistakes, that they have a chance, which they already have, but a chance to continue missing out on what God is doing in this world. But it takes him knowing the story, and in turn, it takes him being willing to critique the story and the narratives that people are living by. And that's big and heavy. Because we don't want to think in terms of critiquing the narratives that this world is living by or that maybe we're living by as a church or whatever it may be. But Stephen does this. And he starts going through the story here. He starts with Abraham. You see, they're questioning, who is this? You don't even, you're trying to change all the customs of Moses. And he goes, let me back up here for a second, right? Let's just go through this whole thing. And so he starts talking about Abraham, how Abraham came from Haran. And he was obedient to the call that God had given him and raised his family in this land. And then he goes into the story of Joseph, one of, uh, one of Jacob's sons of the 12 patriarchs, and how Joseph becomes this second command, mighty person in the land of Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world at this time. He goes into what had happened after that. Eventually there came a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, who was not interested in him, and in turn just saw the people who were the Hebrew people as pawns and objects for them to control and enslave. And then he talks about how there was this young prince named Moses, and it says he was no ordinary person. And this Moses comes into his own story. And the problem with Moses, he doesn't... Um, he doesn't really critique his own story. He just jumps in and tries to bring justice, right? His confrontation is by death. And then he finds that none of the other Hebrew people actually want to follow him. It actually, it's a really interesting verse. In verse 24 and 25, it says that um, Moses thought that they would see that God had called him to lead them, but they did not see it. And then we find that Moses goes to the wilderness, and then when he comes out of the wilderness... And through a burning bush, God's like, you have to go back and lead my people out of slavery. And the story keeps going, saying these people were led out of slavery and into the wilderness. And this is where the story gets interesting. Because look at verse 39. It says, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Talking about Yahweh. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Now, why is this big? Um, God was so evident by bringing people out of slavery. He was so clearly seen and so near and so powerful, and yet they still missed him. It was clear that God had brought them out of slavery, something miraculous, but they still missed God. Stephen's saying, don't you see, they, they missed him. Like, I've wondered this so many times before, if I saw all these plagues go down, and I saw these waters part, and I was brought to the other side, I feel like that'd be enough. Like, I feel like that would be enough for me to go, okay, this is, really, this is the real God, this works, this is where we're going. But not so here. 
And by the way, people are people. We've always had the same tendencies, which means if that was their problem or their situation, we probably would have made similar decisions. It's hard to grasp, but probably so. And for them at this time, it's saying they missed him in the moment. And you're like, how do they miss him in the moment? Well, we read on in verse 41. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol. And they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. They went back to what was familiar. They went to something they could see and control. And this is an important note because this has always been the tendency of us as religious folks. And we'll talk about this more in a minute, though. And that is, we tend to try to find ways to see and think of God to the degree that we can control it. Nobody says in here they're controlling God. But we like things we can control. We like things that we can figure out. So we tend to want to study our Bibles in a way to figure God out and therefore to never be surprised by God. That's just a tendency we have. That's you, that's me, that's not a shame thing. It's just a real thing. And for them, they're saying, Moses has been up on this mountain long enough. We need something we can see and we can control. And Stephen's saying, you see, they're missing it. They're missing out because they're trying to control this God with what they can see. And so they go to things they can control. And then in verse 44, it says, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. God decides, I'm going to come live with these people. I'm going to come dwell with these people. And they're like, we have a good idea. Let's control it where God never, ever leaves. Let's make it and put kind of God in these four walls. Because next we see, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As soon as they built the temple, they thought they could confine God to four walls. This idea of trying to control, because we know God, and this idea that if we kind of have these four walls, that we can, in a sense, control him and know he'll be there. And Stephen's saying, in both places, they absolutely missed it. Now, here's where it gets rough. Because most of the Sanhedrin, I would imagine, would have to agree with this. Yes, they kept missing it. Yes, they kept missing it. We can see those things, sure. And then he says to them in verse 51, you stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, and you are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist when the goose is loose. You always resist when God is at work, and you keep missing it. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? Now, it would be enough to say to someone, you stiff-necked person, right? You stiff-necked person. Um, I don't know if that's the insult I would use today, but I think it still works. You get it, right? But here's what's interesting. When they would have heard that phrase, it would have taken them back because at this point, the Sanhedrin's kind of going, okay, Stephen's talking about people that we're outside of. Yes, we see that. We critique that as well, Stephen. Fine, keep talking. And all of a sudden, like Stephen like turns it on them. He turns it on them because when he says stiff-necked people, it would have taken them back to Exodus 32. I want to show you this in Exodus 32 and Exodus 33. I have seen these people the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them. And then in Exodus 33, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. 
And here's what's happening. Stephen is saying, you Sanhedrin, you people who are the top of the ladder of religion, you who believe that you understand God and the ins and outs of him, and you will receive this temple, by the way, you've missed God this whole time too. And he confronts them with their own story. It's brilliant how he does this. And he's an insider, which you know this. If someone comes to you and tries to critique you with your job, but they have no clue how to do your job, do you listen? No, unless you're really a sick codependent. So otherwise you will, right? But if you have enough of your own being and someone comes to you and says, hey, you're doing a horrible job with that. They're not in your field. You're able to go, I don't really, thanks, no thanks. You're able to walk away from that. But if someone comes to you in your own field, your own line of work and says, hey, this right here seems really off and you tend to respect that person because that person's one of you, you'll want to listen. But what do you do if you're the kind of person that's in the same field, but you're so above everybody else, you never could be critiqued? What a lonely, arrogant place to live. What a place to live that you never can be called to the mat. You never can be called out. And we find that Stephen does it brilliantly here. And here's how he does it, because Stephen knows the story. He's in it. He's living it. See, Stephen was so in the story, he allowed himself to be critiqued by whom? Jesus. See, he came face to face with truth and life and realized something. This thing I'm going by, this thing ain't working. This isn't the right path here. And he was able then to humble himself and follow the Lord. And yet the Sanhedrin, they just can't do it. You see, Stephen's saying, don't you get it? You think you got God figured out, and you think you know where God dwells. Remember in the first sermon we talked about this in the series. If you weren't here, you can listen to it. And that is, God is showing us here in the book of Acts, in the beginning, that he is not bound to the institution. Institutions are fine. The problem is, is when we become institutionalized, is when we tend to think only in that institution can everything work. And he's saying to them, when you believe it only can happen on your terms and through your own thoughts and how you define God, you will miss him. And if you think you know only and always where God is, and he's confined to this one area, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss him, and you're going to miss out. And Stephen's saying, look at all this here. Judge it by its fruit. Judge it by the works. What's happening? Life. Change. Beautiful things. No, they don't line up under your own terms and your own definitions of everything. But don't you see what's happening? God is on the move. Aslan's here. Don't miss out. And yet they cannot hear it. It says they were enraged and they gnashed their teeth. Very specific language here. They were enraged. You know, when someone is dealing with rage, it comes from just a deep amount of fear. And the fear is this, what if I'm getting all this wrong? And so whenever you find and have this fear in you that maybe you're missing out or getting it wrong, you tend to want to go to control, don't you? I know I do. I want to kind of control the moment. And when I can't control it and people are living so uncontrollable around me, I can't help but want to rage out. 
And, and, and just the sick irony, they're the ones trying to hold all the laws of God in hand, and they get so enraged because then they hear, they believe that Stephen's like speaking blasphemy, and so they stone him. They, they kill this person. Just the irony of someone saying, we get God, we can define God, we know where God is, and we're still going to do this horrible atrocity, all in the name of God. Something is very off here. Something is very sick here. Stephen sees that, and he is calling it out. He's saying, listen, you've forgotten the story. You've missed it. And because of that, you're repeating the story here and now. You know, you've heard that line, those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it, right? And it came from a Harvard philosopher um, named George Santayana. And he said, those who can't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Stephen's not missing out here. He's so present in his own story. He knows it so well, he's not missing God. He's able to critique then and turn the story at hand that others are living by. And it is a really attractive thing when you can do that in life. It's a very hard thing to do. But I, I, for me, I don't know about you, I look at Stephen's story and I go, that's amazing. It's not that he's just like, well, I'm just going to kind of go witness and they're not going to listen to me and then I'll die. It's not that simple. This Bible is not that simple. He is doing something in here that if we're willing to look at it and learn from it, maybe we could find ourselves doing some similar things as well, some necessary things within our life, within our culture, even within our church. We have to think it took a lot for him to do that. Like, have you ever had, now let's go back to this, not confronting 12-year-olds talking in the movie theater. We can all agree that's insane, all right? But have you ever had a moment, a narrative that others are living by, and you knew you just had to confront it? And I don't mean like passive-aggressive. I mean, I've gotten this from pastors before that are concerned here in the city with our church, and they'll send passive-aggressive emails. I've gotten that. That's not confronting, okay? Um, I'm talking about when you see something going down around you, and, and you can actually have a say-so, but you got to step into that moment. That moment feels so big, and all you want to do is shrink back. You know what I'm saying? Like, maybe it's with your spouse, maybe it's with your kids, it's with a coworker. Gosh, it could be with a pastor. I know Drew talked about, about that last week. Like we see in Acts 6, they confront these leaders. But it's a big thing to step into those moments. Like your palms get sweaty. Uh, your, your words, you, you start maybe thinking, I can't get all the words down right. Maybe you want to write it all down and read it. Like you're like, how do I go and confront here? Unless I'm an Enneagram 8, how can I confront anyone in this world? It's so difficult. It's a big thing for, for Stephen to step into that. Uh, Madeline LaEngle, in your, your bulletin, I love what she says. We have to be braver than we think we can be because God is constantly calling us to be more than we are. To see through plastic sham to living, breathing reality, and to break down our defenses of self-protection in order to be free to receive and give love. You see, the whole point of a confrontation is to give and receive love. 
But God calls us to these big moments to have more courage than we realize we ever could have. And that's a hard thing. You know, when I think about where I got this whole idea of wanting to confront, I mean, I was bullied all throughout middle school. I think that's why I have, a, that's why I have this fear of middle schoolers, right? Like, they're in the top three scariest people in the world to me. I don't know what to do around them. And as a parent, you're like, and the same for me, right? Like, it's just big. It's a lot to know what to do there. I remember being bullied regularly. Like, it wouldn't be an abnormal situation for me. Uh, I remember in sixth grade being held by the neck in, 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 uh, in the bathroom. That's scary. Um, and you think about that. You're like, that's not okay. That's wrong. Yeah, that is, that is not okay. That is wrong. And yet, I found that no one was there for me, and so I just felt like I had to do it on my own. And then people wouldn't always really believe me when I would talk about what I was going through, right? And so I just felt like it was kind of me against the world, and my only confrontation was to almost like to get back. I have to always question why I'm wanting to confront more and more. I have to learn that about myself. Yet confrontation is necessary to come with face and to say, this is not okay. It takes a lot for us. And if the, the reason is not for love and for there to be change in love, then we'll always be doing it out of rage to control. So can you relate to that? Can you relate to the need to confront situations in life, but like, how do you do it? And I was thinking, I think there's like three spheres for us that needs our confrontation. That's going to take a willingness on our end to know the story well enough to in turn see change in it. I think first is communal within the church. Uh, I, th I think it's really hard the way church is set up, even teaching right now, just so you know. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to call it out for what it is. You get this. Um, you sitting behind a person in front of you who's looking at the back of you and so on and so forth, this is very didactic. So it's very easy just to go, the person who's elevated up on the stage, who has the mic, they have all the power. So whatever it is that person has to say must just be the truth and the only truth, and that's what I'll go by. I'm not saying, like, check out and leave right now. Yeah, riot. I don't, I don't like Robin. I'm not saying that. But it's like, it's what happens. And I, I tended to grow up in church just like, whatever's set up front, that's it. And what I need is, all that truth being said to me so I get to walk away with no questions and no fears and go into my week and go try those principles out until I'm really disheartened that maybe I'm just so broken I can't make those things work by Wednesday and thinking I'm the problem. When the reality is it's how we set up this whole structure many times. That we, in general, don't always know how to think for ourselves and so we tend, at least in church is what I mean, and we tend to just kind of let things go on and we don't confront them. And when we think about in the church, what happens so many times, I mean, he's saying clearly, Stephen, here, and it's other times you've heard us talk about this. Religious folk, us, you, if you consider yourself a Christian, and that's not a bad word, religious folk, we tend to think that we got this whole God thing figured out. And we do lots of classes and lots of studying and lots of reading, and we kind of build up our knowledge, and then we go, I got God figured out. And yet, you don't want to talk about how this God you got figured out that I got figured out is always letting you down, but you thought you had this God figured out. 
And then we get more and more embittered with this God we thought we had figured out when times are so hard, and we fake it to try to make it and realize years down the road we were done with this God. Do you follow that? It's very easy for that to happen. Matter of fact, my guess is that'd be most of you in this room. That's happened at some point in time, especially if you grew up in the church. It's so easy. But I got this whole thing figured out. And I'm not saying that all the information and studies and things we do isn't important. I just mean, like, even when you say the name God, to some extent, like, that's still a construct. God is even bigger than his name God. God's not confined to G-O-D, right? Like, he's, this God is so big and powerful. And another tendency in the church, I think, many times is to say, we know then in turn who, like, is in and who's out. Like, maybe how to control this whole thing. And a lot of you, maybe, have even, like, I would say this. This is how I grew up. There are a lot of churches, um, even in this city, that are convinced they have this whole thing figured out. So we have denominational wars and theology wars and worship wars and everything else you could imagine. And I would guess that perhaps even this room is filled with a lot of people who were incredibly hurt by those churches. Like it just, the math works out, especially here in somewhere like Midtown, right? Uh, people aren't coming here for big, big churches doing big things. For some of you, this could even be the last stop on the train. Like you're going... I'm giving church a shot again for the first time or for the last time. It's a big deal. There's a lot of trauma that happens. And the thing that's important, and here's, here's what we have to be willing to do, is to kind of look at this whole Christendom thing, which that was never like Jesus' intent. Jesus wasn't interested in Christendom. He was interested in people coming to know him. He wasn't interested in a whole systemological way of making sure that here's how we know X, Y, and Z things get all of our ducks in a row. He was just really interested in people coming to him, creating space for people to come to him, passing it down. And institutions are important, but again, the institutionalization can become dangerous. What I'm clearly trying to say is, I think that we have to be careful that we think we got the whole God and church thing figured out. I think it takes just a smidge of humility to go, I think this is it, but I could be wrong. I think this is like who God is. I'm pretty sure. I feel pretty good about it, but I could be wrong. Let me tell you something. That's so attractive. That's so much more attractive than saying, I got it all figured out, and I'm going to die by this. Ride and die, baby. Ride and die by this, Right? And then people get around that, and they don't have to do with that except get away from it. Because deep in their souls, they're going, I don't know how much this thing actually is real. And so I think that's even why we're trying to approach church the way we're approaching it. Like I, and I know it's messy. I know Christ City is messy. I get that. And it's on purpose. Because we're trying to create space for people to be in process, to deal with their trauma, and to perhaps come face to face with a God who really loves them. And is it demanding of them, but is inviting of them? So yeah, it's hard. And I think we have to be willing to critique those things and say, no, we're not going to keep going by the same old, same old, of deciding, well, you're in and you're out because I see this, but I don't see that. You don't know. That's not your job. It's not my job. 
My only job is to try to create a space for people to be in process, to come and meet a Savior that saves me. Amen? Thank you. I think the second thing is important is even socially, and this is about politics. Make no bones about it. The Sanhedrin were a political bunch. We talked about this. They were the ambassadors in Rome. They were the ones who were kind of running the show and the budget. And they see something. Something wild and free is breaking out that we can't control and put under a sociological and political, like, airtight place. It's driving them crazy. And Stephen's even confronting that. Like, listen, there are people hurting out here. Jump in on that. Help them. Be with them. We are, and we invite you to be a part of it. What it takes is to see that there's a true benevolent king who's in control, whose name isn't Nero or Caesar, and it's going to take you being willing to critique your own political culture, your own sociological culture. And listen, this is really hard. On a few levels. One, just take if you are, whether you're a person of color, okay, or whether you're just like born and raised here in Memphis, Tennessee, and your parents are as Anglo as they can be. As a poet, I didn't know it, right? So either way, like, you have to kind of critique where you came from. You can't always keep going by that. Well, that's what my mom said, that's what my dad said, and that's the way it is. Really? But what if that's racist? What do you do then? What if that's like, like there's bigotry in there and sexism in there and all those things? What do you do then? I guess we got to deal with that, don't we? Because those things are not about the flourishing in this world. And here's what we know about Jesus. He's about things flourishing. So we got to confront those things. That's why I don't know if we as Christians get to land somewhere politically. I don't know if that's our thing we get to do. I think we always have to be willing to say our politics are the kingdom of God. Whatever it takes for this kingdom to come into this world, more and more for things to flourish, that's what I'm going to be about. So I'm not going to be confined to a color, but I'm going to be like taken with the Lord. And that's hard. Because then you find you got to actually maybe confront some things at the dinner table with extended family from time to time. But then you got to ask the question, am I doing it out of love or just because I'm so like afraid and enraged? It's hard but it's knowing the story. It's even knowing the story of this country. Listen, this country, we missed it. We came in here and pushed Native Americans aside, and then we thought we could have our way, and then we did it again with with people from Africa. And we said, we're going to control this thing, and we're 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 going to push through, and we didn't learn because we're so justified. Listen, friends, we have to even critique our own story as a nation. Be willing to do that. That's scary. It's hard. And even take this last part personally, because I think this is really important. We'd be willing to critique even our own stories. Listen, it is by God's grace you cannot see the worst parts of your body. All right? I'm just going to leave it there. All right? It's by God's grace you can't see the worst parts of you. Okay? Okay? Because, like, if so, you would be depressed all the time. <laughs> now, let me, let me say this. It takes good friends to hold up a mirror to you and say, this is what it's like for me to be with you. You will never change your life on your own. You'll never change your life, just you and Jesus. 
There, I said it. Your life will never change if you stay in a cave in a hole with your own faith and your own views and your own ways and live so isolated. Your change will only happen if you allow people to come around you to go, this is what I keep seeing. Whoa, that's part of my story? Yeah, it's clearly there. Like, you're kind of racist. I'm not racist, you know? I have, I have black friends. Nope, that doesn't make it not racist. Like, you, you get around people and are like, no, no, I'm about all people, you know, belonging and connecting. You know, you're not. Like, you, you really are arrogant towards certain types of people. Because all your friends are homo- it's just a homogeny. It's all it is. It's all the same. It takes people that you allow in your life to question what they're seeing because then you start seeing your own story more clearly and then you just might find the courage to want to change it. You just might find the courage to say, I don't think I want things to stay the same. Friends, this is a courageous thing that we're all asked to do. That we are willing not only to be the change in our culture by critiquing the stories, but listen, your footing with other people, by the way, this is where Jesus talks about it, right? He goes, don't think about taking a speck from your brother's eye until you take the what? Plank. Think about how absurd that is. Oh, you're concerned with a speck and there's a plank here. Spend time with your plank and then you'll take the speck. Well, guess what happens when you spend all your time taking out a plank that's really big and really hurts? you'll become really sensitive and loving on even a speck and will not rush just to gouge that thing out. If we spend time with ourselves and learn actually how to love ourselves well, which Jesus is really into, love God, love you, love others, you might just find, I might just find a way to love others and how to lovingly critique the narratives at hand. And there's no guarantee that people won't gnash their teeth at you, right? Become livid. They just might. And you'll now know there's a boundary. (laughs) But here's what we know. We know that we have a God on our side that's willing to be with us, who loves us. And even as he shows us our story, says to us, hey, you may be off, you may be broken, but I like that. I can work with that. We can find change in that. I think we can as well with ourselves and the world around us. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your table, we ask now that you would come and meet us. That it's a very scary thing to confront the stories of our world and the things we tend to live by. And it gets really scary when we try to even confront our own story. And uh, it takes good, faithful, loving friends who have removed their planks from the help of others and so that they can help us remove our specks. So we, we ask you now as we come before the table, the ultimate place, truly, um, where we find love and acceptance and kindness and grace, that we would find the energy, the oomph to walk out of here more willing to see the stories at play in our religion and our world and ourselves and go, hey, maybe something needs to change there. And can I find the courage to be and to be a part of that change? In your name we pray. Amen.